Hey y'all, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Squirrel with your weekly knock activism wrap-up. Today we're going to be talking about homelessness, housing costs, vacancy taxes, sexual harassment at USC in the DA's office, oh yeah, and a huge fire down at the refinery in Carson. But first, how's it going, Bushido? Uh, it's going pretty well. So we've got the election coming up Tuesday, obviously, uh, and then our long yeah. state nightmare will be over until November. <laughs> uh, get out there and vote. Uh, you can start. You could have started voting last Saturday, the 22nd. Uh, you can also... Four Day Voting Centers will be opening up uh, today that you're going to be hearing this because we'll be releasing this on Saturday and recording on a Friday. So make sure you get out there. Make sure you vote. Uh, If you're not registered, you can register day of and cast a provisional ballot, but you have no excuse to not vote. And don't forget to Google your voting center because it's not in the place where it used to be, uh, and it may or may not be more convenient for you. Yeah, the website for that is actually locator.lavote.net. Yep, that'll work too. Uh, but before, uh, I'm not going to spend too much time talking about what's been going on this week because I really want to hop into what's been going on in Echo Park Lake. Yes. We had a huge escalation. One thing I want to note off the top of this is that we can trace what's going on here directly back to Mitch O'Farrell's office. And Mitch O'Farrell's office and his staffers working in that office are doing a terrible, terrible, terrible job of helping anyone who's in the park or even protecting the rights of like, who they see as their actual constituents, their homeowners and everything, like they are by all measures making things worse. So let's talk about what went down earlier this week with Devon Brown and then use that to talk about how Mitch's office has, and I'm putting this in big square quotes, responded to the (laughs) demands of the people living in the park. Well, so the basic summary of this is that uh, every Wednesday for the last month or so, uh, there's been an escalation in the enforcement of uh, cleanups that are purported to be in the park where LA Sanitation and park rangers are coming through and going about collecting refuse and uh, threatening to take tents and other belongings from the unhoused community that has set up residence in the park because they literally have nowhere else to go. And on Wednesday, things escalated pretty dramatically. There's a lot of really good footage that was released from uh, LA, from Streetwatch uh, activists who who recorded what had ha- actually happened on site the day of. And it clearly shows that uh, Devon Brown, who is one of the leaders within the en- encampment, uh, was being targeted by park rangers. And after he tripped uh, as he was walking backwards, uh, park rangers lunged at him with a baton held out and, and you know in a very threatening, menacing way. And then uh, Devon ended up being restrained and, and you know ta- taken to the ground, uh, put in cuffs, and then arrested and detained at the Metropolitan Detention Center downtown uh, for basically the entire day. And uh, he was fortunately released after a massive outpouring of uh, calls and support from within the community. Uh, to the Metropolitan Detention Center. We even had a bunch of folks from, I believe it was from Austin, who also are uh, active in the space of trying to prevent the sweeps of homeless encampments in their city. They hopped on board because the the call went on on Twitter to get uh, everyone to call into the Metropolitan Detention Center and demand that Devon Brown be freed. Uh, It was a a dramatic escalation uh, from previous weeks where there were more, more activists had shown up in previous weeks to form basically a, a, a human chain uh, to protect the encampment from uh, you know an aggressive sweep action, uh, an eviction action effectively by sanitation and park rangers. But uh, unfortunately, there were not as many activists out this time around, and we see exactly what happens when that's the case. Uh, and then also, we had Mitch O'Farrell staffers, uh, apparently Juan, uh, 
uh, Fragoso uh, showing up at the Echo Park Neighborhood Council yes. and complaining that the people living at the park had not been reaching out to the council office, despite the numerous protests that literally went to the council office and yes. demanded to meet with the city council member. Uh, the staffers apparently don't think that that counts as legitimate outreach from the community. I'm not sure what they think legitimate outreach looks like. Multiple emails have been sent, signed letters have been sent, like open letters published in multiple uh, publications and websites have been sent to Mitch O'Farrell's office. They haven't responded to any of them. Correct. And let's not forget, Mitch O'Farrell said he was going to keep the bathrooms at Echo Park Lake open 24 hours a day, which they already were. They were, They're yes. now locked at night because yes, they, they can't find a nighttime bathroom attendant. So things have actually gotten worse with Mitch O'Farrell's promises. And this is also on the heels of Mitch finding a half million dollars to provide hygiene services at the park, which apparently has gone nowhere except to paying for armed guards. Uh, again, very confused as to why we need armed guards guarding the restrooms or why that's supposed to make people feel safe or welcome there or how that's supposed to provide, like, a friendlier environment to anyone who's using that. Like, even if you're a housed person living in Echo Park, you now have to go past a bathroom attendant who's got a gun in order to, like, use the facilities there. That doesn't sound welcoming or happy or, like, in any way, shape, or form a better situation than what we had before. And, like, Mitch O'Farrell is really showing his true stripes. One of the activists from Streetwatch saw Mitch O'Farrell uh, trying to leave his office, and Mitch O'Farrell got in his car and ran away as fast as he could. Like, yeah. I think Mitch is just hoping that he can get this contained before he has to go up for re-election in two years. Uh, he's hoping that he can keep collecting behested payments and developer payments and basically have enough money that he can steamroll any opposition. But this is really getting to the point where, like, I don't generally back recall campaigns because they're a pain in the butt, they don't generally work, and they often leave the target in a stronger position than they were. But I think we need to get Mitch O'Farrell out of office. Like, he's going to get someone killed with his incredibly stupid plans. He's not very good at this. He's only got his seat because of two very low turnout elections yeah. and his connections to Mayor, to Mayor Eric Garcetti. So, like, it's time for Mitch to begin to feel the heat more than just people showing up. Like, if you want to get him to change, I feel like he's the type of person where you have to go after the money. And going after the money in this case means showing developers and the other people who fund his career that he's not a safe bet anymore, that he's not going to be able to get things done in City Hall that's going to benefit them. And hopefully with some like massive progressive wins on Tuesday, he will feel even more pressure. Uh, but let's stay on the topic of housing and homelessness and talk about what's going on in Venice. And you, you said you had something you wanted to show me. Yeah. And like Chris wouldn't show me. It's like some sort of surprise. <laughs> so like, what is this, Chris? All right. Well, so it, there's a, uh, a new bridge shelter that is opening up in uh, the Venice community where, where it's been a hotly contested issue since 2018 when these bridge shelters were first announced. Uh, but here, go ahead and take a look at this, uh, the enforcement zone that's going to come along with this new bridge shelter. Oh, holy shit. This is, wait, so, hold on. So the, the enforcement zone is, like, all of Venice? Like, just all of Venice? Like, down yeah. to the water, right? Like, yeah, just past Speedway, all the way up to Abbott Kinney, uh, going up to 4th Street. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, so, like, like sorry, uh, east of 4th Street is, like, mainly single-family homes that aren't really encampments or yeah. stuff out there, uh, and that, that sort of stretches up to Lincoln, uh, but yeah, this looks like all of the places where people are living on the street is now an enforcement zone in Venice. And this looks like much bigger than the quarter mile radius or whatever they were asking for beforehand. Well, so it's traditionally been, I think it was like 500 foot radii uh, when it comes to- This the, is much more than 500 the, yeah. feet. Yeah, so it's like, that That was, I believe, if my memory serves, and it might not, I apologize. Uh, when we, they first started announcing these shelters, like the one that is up in, um, up near the, uh, the, the 
But so we've got, we have several thousand people who are oh, in, yeah, yeah. in uh, District 11 living on the streets. Yes. So clearly they've built enough beds for all of them, right? Or else they couldn't have that this yeah. intense of an enforcement zone, right? Like no. everyone in the zone has a bed, <laughs> right, no. Chris? Ab- that's how this works? That's absolutely not how this works. Uh, this is the same kind of a situation that we had with the uh, area up by the, um, the community, the bridge shelter that they opened up in downtown just around Chinatown. Oh, the El Pueblo? El Pu- well, it's the El, El Puente. That's what they called it. It was El Puente. I was struggling with the name there for a minute. Uh, the El Puente shelter, when they opened it up, it, they put in something like 65, 70 beds uh, in an area that had previously been home to somewhere around 500 unhoused folks. And then they just you know, started doing these sweeps every single week where there is you know an active patrol of officers out there meant to make sure that people are not setting up any kind of an encampment near where this shelter was placed because the shelter is supposed to, you know, solve the problem. And it's being offered in this whole carrot and stick approach where the carrot for the unhoused folks is that you've got this bridge shelter, which you uh, apparently can't even stay in during the day. Uh, And then the stick is that you can't be camping anywhere in the area. And that means that the uh, local businesses and some of the homeowners that complain about encampments have that ability to, you know, rely on LAPD and, and it gives cover for LAPD um, to come in and actually enforce those uh, exclusion zones effectively. So the grand opening of the shelter, which happened this past week, uh, neighbors did try to block this for a couple of years, actually. But uh, Councilmember Mike Bonin said that, quote, the alternative is knowing that we did nothing while people continue to die on our streets, end quote. And the opposition to this was loud and vociferous oh, yes. and terrible. Absolutely. So uh, Elijah Chland did some really great reporting on this in Curbed. Uh, he says, quote, in 2018, when the project was still in the planning stages, neighboring residents petitioned to block the project and jeered at a town hall meeting attended by Garcetti and Bonin. A lawsuit filed by the neighborhood group opposed to the shelter delayed the start of construction for months, and at the beginning of the year, authorities discovered a device resembling an explosive placed close by the site, uh, end quote. So yeah, this is a, uh, a very contentious site. I mean, the number of shelter beds, uh, let me see if I can find that real quick. Yeah, so this this shelter is going to have 154 beds in it. Uh, there are 100 beds for adults, and it's you know this big hangar-like structure, and there are 54 beds for young people in temporary trailers though, outside of that main structure. Uh, so there there will also be some services, like there's a, a dining space in a, in a courtyard and a bunch of colorful, colorful murals, which actually look quite pretty, and it, it does look kind of fun from that side. Um, but it is you know 154 beds in Venice just is is so completely out of scale with the you know scope of the problem in the community uh it, it's just absolutely absurd that this is this small of a shelter is going to end up with that large of an enforcement zone so uh thank you Mike Bonin for getting that shelter put in but also holy shit the enforcement zone there looks absolutely terrifying yeah, it's it's a lot of people that are going to be caught up in that. And this is already a pretty harsh place to live. You have Google there. You have a lot of big businesses that have been chasing people who are living on the street out of the places where they've been secure. Uh, and it's like with Venice, you have that weird mix of the they want the bohemian sort of like cachet because that's marketable and it's tourist friendly. But at the same time, they don't want the people who actually make that up. And if you've been in L.A. for a while, you remember what the boardwalk used to be and how much character it used to have. And now it's gone the freak shows closed i mean 
the American Apparel thing, like at least they were a California company, but like they're gone <laughs> because their CEO was a terrible sex pest. Yes, he was. Uh, and they also closed their union factory here because everything sucks. So it, this is just an escalation that I don't think is going to help. Uh, it's definitely going to give uh, Pacific Division uh, the excuse to be a lot meaner to people who are unhoused, which they apparently really, really love to do. Uh, and I don't, you know, there's not another shelter going in anywhere around there. So I don't know what they're going to do with all of these people. The city council keeps saying, we can't arrest our way out of homelessness. But then all of their solutions are, we're going to arrest our way out of homelessness. So, what, duh, I mean, WTF, I'm, I'm really, really hopeful that, the, you know, the Homes Guarantee package that Bonin was introducing uh, last, uh, this past month, is going to be able to get some real legs underneath it and we can actually start talking about building social housing and a bunch of other things that will genuinely provide solutions to this problem. But the time frame that we're looking at and the enforcement zones f around these kinds of bridge shelters, just it, it's, it's just doesn't match up with like what the scale of this issue is. And the, any new social housing, which especially if we're not going to be getting any federal funding, because of course we're not going to get federal funding because Trump is an awful human being. Uh, the result we're going to get federal funding to build concentration camps to uh, keep people away. We're not going to get you know federal funding to help people. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's going to take forever to get this social housing put in place, and I mean, this is going to be a situation that the the folks who make up uh, the community around Echo Park are going to be like that. That is a situation that we're going to be seeing repeating because the people who live in Venice are not going to have anywhere to go. Like, yeah. This is the 154 beds is great, but it's not nearly enough to deal with the scale of the problem. So let's see how this all goes. And, you know, to, to make to put a finer point on this as we move on to our next story, um, which I unfortunately has gotten, I think, a little bit um, it been made a little obsolete by the events of the last four days where like <laughs> the, the stock market is absolutely tanked. And while the stock market isn't the economy, it is no. a good bellwether of where things are going. Yeah. And when the uh, most successful stock on the market, i.e. Apple, has lost 20% in a week, that is a really bad sign for those of us who are not uber wealthy and are, you know, a, one bad month away from ending up on the street ourselves. But even if you're not in that position yet, it looks like in the next five to 10 years, you're going to be anyways, because we've done such a bad job at regulating our housing market that it's probably going to destroy our economy. So let's talk about this report yeah. from Curbed. Yeah, so Jenna Chandler published a piece uh, in Curbed on February 21st, which carries the subheading of, quote, a new report predicts a slowdown in the economy, in the local economy, in large part because of the housing market, end quote. So this is a report that uh, came out of the Los Angeles Economic Development Corporation, and their economist, Eric Hayes, said that, quote, housing is the largest barrier to economic growth in the region, end quote, which, you know, really succinctly puts a very fine point on exactly what the real problem is here. Um, but this report coming from the LAEDC uh, says that, quote, the fact that the median California household must pay more than seven times its income to afford a home should be grounds of, for grave concern regarding sustainable economic growth, end quote. Uh, Hayes also told Curbed that, quote, it's very easy for people when they encounter someone who is homeless to say, oh, that's not me. I have a job. I own a home. But what our research shows is that this is impacting you, too. If we start entering a spiral of economic decline, it's not going to go well for you either, end quote. I, I mean, uh, one thing that strikes me as interesting in that quote is... I'm sure Eric Hayes is a very nice person, yeah. but I don't think he runs in the same circle as like most of society <laughs> because saying I have a job, I own a home is not how most people who have jobs operate. Like yeah. people who own homes, especially in LA, are not job havers. Yeah. They're career havers. Yeah. And there's a difference between the two. But beyond that, I also, you know, want to point out that one of the things that we don't talk about enough is the fact that we've had this giant sucking sound of 
the ability to have an ownership stake in society from our generation to older generations. Like one reason that baby boomers are so well off is because they were able to buy property cheap and then it appreciated. And the way that's supposed to work is like every subsequent generation then, you know, buys in and is able to pass it off while seeing like some sort of return. Like they're getting equity. They're, they're earning yeah. money on the stuff that they own. Whereas after 2008, nobody in the millennial or, you know, Gen Z generations owns anything. We can't afford to. The Black Rocks of the world, the Sean Hannity's of the world, they bought up all the housing stock. If you're not able to invest in the most growth asset that you can personally own, you're pretty screwed. You know, for most people in California and in Los Angeles, the most expensive thing that they own is their car, a depreciating asset that they're probably financing. Yeah. Like you're just pissing away money. Taking out debt on a house is good because at the end of the day, that house will be worth more than it was when you bought it and more than you paid in debt. Mm -hmm. The car is always going to be worth less, but that's the only thing you can afford and you need. Like owning a house doesn't get you to work to continue owning that house. Leasing a car gets you to work to yeah. be able to keep paying for that car. It's like having a terrible demon horse that kicks you in the <laughs> face every morning and then dies when it's least opportune. And this is just like, we've painted ourselves into such a stupid corner here. Like when people talk about capitalism not working or crony capitalism being bad, what they ignore is this is the way capitalism is supposed to work. The yes, most famous capitalists Absolutely. that we have are monopolists. You know, the Rockefellers, uh, the, the Standard Oils, like successful businesses generate and create monopolies because those are easy to protect and defend their profits from competition. Capitalism is not about competition. It's about do destroying competition in favor of a more hierarchical, uh, less robust system that allows yeah. money to travel across like generational and age and community lines. What we're facing now, especially with like COVID-19 and like just the general global economic slowdown that we've been seeing coming for a while is a massive crash where there is nothing to backstop it. You know, the thing about COVID-19 without buying into like the scare tactics of like, is this a, you know, are we like World War Z levels of panic yet? <laughs> it's that our economy is so fragile yeah, that a big bump in the road could literally destroy us all. There's so many businesses here in California that do not generate a profit. Uber, Lyft, do not generate a profit. Yeah. Employ thousands of people. And I put employee in, in quotation marks just to make yeah. sure they don't sue us for being like, we don't have employees. <laughs> but if those businesses collapse tomorrow, which they could, all of those jobs are gone and yeah. there's no backstop. There's no tax base because also those companies aren't paying their taxes. Like if Amazon needs to cut the number of gig workers that they're using, they haven't paid into the tax base to make sure that we have a robust social safety net that pays people unemployment and healthcare when they don't have a job. No, 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 no. That money is just going into Jeff Bezos' pocket so he can, I don't know, swim around in a Scrooge McDuck style well, I mean, like he, pile he, full he, of money. Like, he bought fuck that, that guy. $145 million home here in LA, so he's going to be moving to the neighborhood. Um, uh, but the... But the uh, the wait, wait, where's that? I not that I want to burn it down or anything, but where's that house? <laughs> I think no, it's, I think it's up in the hills. <laughs> of course, it's up in the hills. Um, and yeah, so the, the the point here is that the economy that everybody talks about as being like the most robust. Well, up until this week, everyone was like, "Oh, the economy is so robust; it's performing so well." There are so many people that are no longer unemployed, and it's just like, yo, do you do you, do you realize what? those numbers actually reflect like, yeah, a ton of people are employed, but they're underemployed or they're employed in multiple jobs trying to make ends meet or, well, because also, median incomes have not appreciably risen in the last decade. Well, also the standard unemployment measure only counts you if you're looking for a job. Yeah. So if you've given up after oh, six yeah. months of looking for a job and just been like, I'm just not a 
job having a person anymore. Yeah, You're it, not counted in there. Absolutely. You know, the, the U12 number is higher, but it's still only like 9%, which I find to be BS. I still think that's an undercount. But fundamentally, like, we're coming to a period of time where all of the money is in the hands of a very small group of people who have no interest in sharing it. And, you know, this is like... <laughs> Bernie like, Sanders is going to make you share yeah. it, damn it. Well, but, like, if you're a bear like me, you've understood that, like, the fundamentals of the economy and the stock valuations have been untethered from reality for way too long. And, like, Absolutely. there has to be a cor oh, yeah. correction there. Um, the problem is other, like, some billionaires out there have correctly seen when you get to a point where things are this unequal, that's when the pitchforks and guillotines come out. And, yeah. like, that's sort of, like... I remember reading an article where like wealthy people were like, hey, you know, if I hire this private army to defend my like apocalypse bunker, <laughs> what happens when the monetary system collapses? Like, how do I keep the men with guns from you, taking you, all my you stuff? You get shot by the guys you hired. I know, I'll get some robots. And like, that's literally the <laughs> oh, no. solution. And so we have this weird, oh, weird shit. like race towards the bottom in terms of like human empathy and compassion when like we can fix this and we can solve it, but like the people at the top need to like GTFO real quickly. Yeah. Now on that same subject, it looks hey. like, you know, the city of Los Angeles will probably be voting on a vacancy tax in November, but it looks like Sacramento might beat us to that. So let's talk about this. Yeah. So this is all coming out of the uh, mom's house situation in uh, up in Oakland, that took place. Last, it was at the. It was. I mean, from it was December the, the, yeah, until December the until eviction. February. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's been going on for a bit, but um, Senator uh, Nancy Skinner, State Senator Nancy Skinner from uh, from Berkeley, uh, introduced Senate Bill 1079. Which let's just go ahead and read straight from the Sacramento Bee. Quote: This would allow local officials to adopt ordinances to fine in an unspecified amount, corporations and companies that leave residential buildings vacant for more than 90 days. The money would then have to be used for homeless diversion, rental assistance, and other affordable housing purposes. The proposal also permits cities and counties to buy or take over a company's residential property if it's been vacant for at least 90 days. The local agency would then have to maintain the home and rent it at an affordable price to families of low or moderate income or sell it to a community land trust or housing sponsor according to the bill language. So this is uh, pretty fucking radical, all things yeah. considered. Like, I am absolutely thrilled to be seeing this uh, introduced because the idea of, uh, you know, uh, studying the vacancy tax, like what we're doing here in L.A. is very cool. It's very good. Uh, it's been shown that vacancy taxes work. Like, we can look at the case of Vancouver, where suddenly all of these mansions were being rented out to, like, college students because the multimillionaire owners who live overseas were like, oh, shit. Uh, my property taxes just doubled because I don't have anybody living here. Well, and also, it, it also raises the question of like when people say, well, vacancy taxes don't work. What they mean is it's not a complete solve. And you're <laughs> yeah, like, so well, <laughs> your alternative is this failing system that yeah. we have. Like, does it fail less badly than what we have now? If the answer is yes, then it's a better policy. Absolutely. So, and it's absolutely also worth doing because, you know, you now have more homes for people to be living in. And on top of that, you're also bringing in more revenue that you can be using for good things. So uh, Senator Nancy Skinner said that, quote, this kind of housing crisis in California with the number of people who are homeless, housing insecure, there's no justification for homes to be vacant. My bill is designed to give local governments more tools to incentivize those corporations to actually put people in these homes. And if they don't, to enable local governments, nonprofits, affordable de housing developers to buy them. So uh, in response to this, also, uh, Dominique Walker, who is from Moms for Housing up in Oakland, said, quote, this is what happens when we organize, when people come together to build that beloved community, end quote. And honestly, that's exactly what this is about. Like, this is exactly the kind of response that Mom's House 
deserves. This is exactly the kind of response that Mom's House mm-hmm. organizers wanted. And it is proof that when you organize, you win. This is exactly what we're talking about, and this is why we do what we do. But this is also, (laughs) I want to say, this is the time when like these kinds of plans need to come forward because the crunch that's coming is going to be be a low point that's going to allow people with liquidity to buy in again just the way that they did in 2008. They're going to be weak here for a bit because their money is all leveraged. They're all leveraged to the hilt. Their money, like, they don't have big piles of cash sitting around. It's all structured debt and finance deals. When they're at a weak point, that's when you strike, that's when you use these tools to get them to give up the properties that they own, to force them into negotiating positions, to make them understand that they're going to be taking a loss. And, and, we have a very small window of time to do this, and it's also contingent upon this federal government not sweeping in and bailing them all out again. Like that's again why yeah. we need Bernie Sanders yeah. is if we have a Trump or an Elizabeth Warren, even or God forbid, a Michael Bloomberg in office, when it's time to like rebuild the economy, they're just going to funnel money directly to the banks and be like, "Oh no, the banks know what to do. They'll yeah, loan it out to consumers." It's we, like, no, they won't. They'll buy T bills. They'll earn a percent and a we've half. We've seen exactly yeah. what happens. This the, is what happened in two thousand eight. This is what happened when you've got Goldman Sachs folks telling Obama what to do <laughs> and how to restructure the economy for their own benefit, not for the benefit of homeowners. Like we saw the largest transfer of intergenerational wealth from uh, you know communities of color into the hands of bankers and the top 1% of this economy under Obama's watch because yep. Goldman Sachs was the was the was the you know the brains behind what happened. It's it's fucking absurd that we are in this kind of situation again. And you know, unless we've got Bernie, we're going to be in a really really bad spot with this. Now, I think one of the interesting things to look at when we talk about private finance and stuff, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but stick with me. That's cool. Is where the tentacles go and where they're emanating from. And you know, people forget that somebody like Steve Mnuchin is like one of the most prolific producers in Hollywood and produced such, you know, <laughs> classics as Suicide Squad. Now, he's directly connected to people like Harvey Weinstein, who are like the power behind uh, getting these movies financed and made and out into theaters. Now, I bring up Harvey Weinstein because he's going to jail finally uh, in the state of New York for yeah. uh, raping someone because he's a terrible human being. But it is a really fucked up thing that in the year of our Bernie 2020, we're still talking about sexual harassment on the daily because it is a problem that we still face on the daily. And apparently USC has been doing a particularly terrible, terrible job at dealing with sexual harassment and sexual assault allegations to the point where like Trump's federal government is mad at them. Like imagine that <laughs> being so bad at dealing with sexual violence that Donald fucking Trump's federal government Brings the hammer down on you. Let's yep. talk about it. So and the, by the way, yeah, go Troy and whatnot, I guess. <laughs> yeah, by the way, uh, we are both uh, former students I at dropped USC. out proudly. Fair, fair enough. So in the wake of the shocking revelations surrounding Dr. George Tyndall, uh, who was the sole full-time gynecologist at the Student Health Clinic for 27 years, uh, federal regulators are sanctioning USC heavily. Matt Hamilton and Harriet Ryan are reporting in the LA Times piece that was published on the 27th, uh, laying things out uh, thusly. Quote, the U.S. Department of Education on Thursday ordered USC to make changes in how it handles sexual harassment cases and to submit to three years of federal monitoring, saying the university failed to protect students from a campus gynecologist accused of abusing hundreds of patients. Quote, what we have found at USC is shocking and reprehensible, Kenneth L. Marcus, the department's assistant secretary for civil rights, said in a statement. Quote, continuing, no student should have... Uh, should ever have to face the disgusting behavior that USC students had to deal with, end quote. And, I mean, 
Unfortunately, yeah. this is only one part of the problem. Like yes, George it is. Tyndall was specifically like a very egregious example oh, yeah. of this. But like what's happened on Fraternity Row and like oh, what uh, happens in just normal campus culture isn't any better. No, like USC has sort of a restorative justice program, but having known people that like tried it, found that it was more to keep you quiet than to actually fix the problem. Uh, that like geez. there's a lot of sexual violence that still happens on our college campuses that yeah. we're just doing a terrible job at. And a lot of that also, I think, has to go back to our nation's inability to teach people sex ed. Like, this is all one ridiculous thing, but it also ties into our stance with no Olympics because we did, uh, like, I, I hosted that one episode mm -hmm. talking about how sexual abuse allegations, specifically at the University of Michigan and Michigan State, were tied to the U.S. Olympics gymnastics team. Yep. And this is not, like, unheard of in college, and it's not heard of, unheard of for men also. Like, there's the Ohio State coach yeah. where the same thing is going on. We have, within our college athletics, a lot of very ambitious people who are trying to make their career when they're very young, don't really know how to speak up for themselves and can be taken advantage of and have it held over their head. Well, oh, if you piss off the doctor, yeah. then they're going to put in a bad yeah. word with a coach and then you're not going to your get your shot finished. at the Olympics. Yeah. Like you only have four to eight years where you can compete at that really high level. And if you miss that window, your career will go nowhere. And yep. all of that time and energy you invested would just disappear. So we have a lot of things that have to be untangled here. It's a good start that like making a university tell the authorities when one of their employees is like trying to rape students is like a good start. Oh, absolutely. But it's also sad that like, that's the good start we're at. Yeah. Like again, it's, I mean, it's 2020. We, we should be long past this and move beyond this conversation. I feel like we're just spinning our wheels yeah, in the mud. And, and the, the fact that USC was like still trying to like cover this up back in 2016 when these allegations first came out and he had been in that position of authority and power for 27 years. And women, it's not like this was something that had just started. It's something that USC administrators had known about for a very, very long time. And they just, you know, swept it under the rug. This is exactly the problem, like, with... I mean, and even beyond sweeping it under the rug, like, actively encouraged people yeah. not to report it. Yeah. And told them, like, oh, no, you can't sue us over this. We'll beat you. Like, they, they silenced victims. And, like, there will not be reparations for those people, um, there's some vindication, I guess, finally. Yeah, it's, it's it's just a mess. And I mean, this is this is the kind of thing where we're talking about a culture of suppression, a culture of uh, making excuses, and a culture of saying, you know, that's just the way it is. Don't speak up, because if you speak up, like, nothing good is going to come out of it. And uh, that, I think, leads us very nicely. Well, I was, I was going to say, this, this does kind of dovetail with what yeah. we're about to talk about, yeah. because... DA Jackie Lacey went and had a big press conference on the first day of Harvey Weinstein's trial in New York saying, we're going after Weinstein also. Turns out uh, people in glass houses probably shouldn't go throwing stones uh, because Jackie Lacey's district attorney's oh, office yeah. also has a sexual harassment problem, yeah. along with many problems, but we'll, we'll focus on the sexual harassment one for yeah, right now. And, and, it, and it's, it's big. So there's a, uh, a 2,500-word article that was published uh, in Witness LA. Uh, it was written by L.J. Williamson, and uh, it was published this week, uh, right in the run-up to, of course, the Super Tuesday primary, where uh, our current DA, Jackie Lacey, is seeking a third term in office. Of course, she did run unopposed back in 2016, but this year she is facing a strong uh, competition from public defender Rachel Rossi and from former San Francisco DA, George Gascon. So the reporting that Williamson did is... Shocking! It is it's thorough. Surprisingly, um, like it's amazing that there's this much evidence that could yeah. be 
obtained, and yet nothing has happened when you're talking about an office full oh, yeah. of lawyers. It, it was, yeah, of prosecutors, the people who, well, I guess that actually makes sense <laughs> for why. Whose job it is to go after these <laughs> why, sorts of things. Wait, Weird. why would they go after themselves? Huh. Uh, it's almost like we need to have somebody who's watching the, the prosecutors and who's also watching the cops because the prosecutors, anyway, it's a mess. Um, so the reporting is thorough and it is absolutely damning. It highlights the ways in which sexual harassment has pervaded the district attorney's office for literally decades and how Lacey, who's been at the head of this office for the past eight years, has been utterly ineffective in creating the kind of cultural shift that would end the cycle of sexual harassment. Uh, of course, this is also sexual harassment that she herself told the reporter that she had been a target of during her early career. Lacey told Williamson in an interview that, in regard to her experience, uh, quote, I remember thinking, well, I'll ignore this and maybe it'll go away because I don't want to make waves. And for years up until now, I think that a lot of people have chosen that path, end quote. So now she is endorsing effectively a zero tolerance policy surrounding sexual harassment and is promising that there is no culture of retaliation in her office. And she encourages her staff to, quote, report any allegation of sexual harassment because it's not something that I tolerate and don't believe that it should be that it should occur in any kind of work environment, end quote. But uh, that culture of permissiveness and covering up sexual harassment was apparently very much present back as recently as 2015, 2016, which was, of course, the end of Lacey's first term. Here is an example from Williamson's article that is just, it's just shocking. I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs here because, honestly, Williamson did an amazing job and uh, uh, there's no way to replace what she said. So uh, a little bit of a setup in this is that in 2015, two deputy DAs, their names are Beth Silverman and Tanaz uh, Mokayev. They filed a high-profile sexual harassment lawsuit against their boss in the elite major crimes division, and his name is Gary Hernsberger. Let me go ahead and read straight from the article now. Quote, Hernsberger, who was suspended for two years with grade five pay while the legal action was ongoing, retired after its resolution. Mokayev and Silverman, by contrast, had to use vacation days to attend depositions that Hernsberger was paid to attend. Hernsberger's attorney fees were also covered by the county, but his accusers were not. Six deputy district attorneys interviewed for this story described Hernsberger's re reputation for engaging in inappropriate conduct as, quote, widely known, and the complaint against him alleged a pervasive pattern of ongoing sexually explicit comments. Yet the county's internal investigation, quote, found no evidence of sexual harassment. In fact, after Mokayev and Silverman's suit was filed at the department, uh, at the next department Christmas party, Hernsberger was celebrated in a comedy skit depicting him as the ghost of Christmas past, one prosecutor said. The past was when we could still have fun and not be subject to lawsuits, she explained. My supervisors uh, were there cheering and clapping. The message was very clear, she said. That hurt my soul. I, uh, there's a reason why I was reading directly from it. Like, holy shit. If this is the kind of culture that you're allowing to fester within your DA's office, it's no fucking wonder that nobody's coming forward to do anything about this. The, like, effectively, what this article is pointing out is that whenever anybody comes forward to make any kind of claims, there is absolutely retaliation. Whether it means that you're not getting promoted the next time that you're up for a promotion, or you're getting put on, I believe that they call it freeway therapy. It's this process where they say, well, congratulations, you work for the county and the county's fucking huge, so we're gonna send you to offices on every other side of the county, so you're spending hours a day commuting back and forth between yep. these various offices because that literally is punishment here in LA County. 
because we have a completely well, it's a good way to make sure that you can't transit. do your work either. Yeah, if absolutely. you're having to spend four hours a day driving, that means that's four hours where you're not able to do research, where you're not able to tend to your cases, where yeah. you're not able to like do your jobs. So when your next performance review comes up, like, oh my gosh, yeah. look at how your numbers have dropped. Look at how how unsuccessful you've yeah. been in your prosecutions. We we better not keep you around, or we better not give you that raise that you desperately need because yeah. inflation happens every year. Yep. And as a prosecutor, you don't like get those built-in raises. Like yep. you have certain pay grades that you have to meet. It's yeah. just it's 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 you know a terribly stupid broken system that's meant to punish people oh, for yeah. stepping out of line and Without not actually, doing what the boss wants. Yeah, and it's 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 a way of being like, no, this is just you know, the, no, we didn't do anything out of line. This is just what you know the the hand that you were dealt. And uh, they also have uh, in in these kind of circumstances, the the claims are that their caseloads were also increased. Uh, to be like significantly more than what their colleagues were dealing with in the same groups. So um, there's a little bit more here that I'm going to go ahead and read a couple more quotes. Quote, this isn't a safe place to make a report, said one Los Angeles, grade, uh, Los Angeles County grade three deputy DA. We talk a good game with our equity policy. It's a joke. Once you report, everyone wants to know who did it. Then the, then the theories, the rumors, and the ostracization. Um, Continuing on, nearly all of the comments in this article uh, <laughs> are claiming that it's politicking and that it's a smear given the time of the publication, which, you know, this is a kind of knee-jerk reaction that seems to be a pretty standard way that anyone who supports a given candidate for office is going to be responding to any reporting that sullies the reputation of their preferred candidate. But in, in case anyone wants to check uh, and challenge the bona fides of L.J. Williamson, here's a little quick excerpt from her bio. So... L.J. Williamson is an award-winning features writer with three Los Angeles Press Club awards to her name and a CACJ Journalistic Integrity Award, which she won uh, during her three-year tenure as criminal law reporter for legal trade paper The Daily Journal. As a freelancer, L.J. was on the masthead at LA Weekly and a regular contributor to the Los Angeles Times. L.J. also has bylines in Witness LA, The Christian Science Monitor, Salon, Utni, uh, Sunset, Babel.com, and other local and national publications. There's also another quick uh, piece that I wanted to cite here. Let me pull up the article again. Where'd it go? So to uh, camp in just a, you know an example of just the kind of um, uh, retaliatory effects that we that have been documented in this article, the first paragraph that LJ opens up with, uh, it, it really just summarizes how it's not even the victims who get retaliated against. It's literally anyone who does. The reporting of this, and and this also includes uh, retaliations for not just sexual harassment, but also for any kind of a whistleblower pointing out like prosecutorial misconduct, mishandling of evidence, anything that you do that steps out of line, you get like the hammer dropped on you. So let me just read another paragraph here. Last September, L.A. County Deputy District Attorney uh, Karen Nishita received a three hundred thousand dollars settlement from the County of Los Angeles after testifying that she had been enduring sexual harassment by her supervisor, Prosecutor Edward Miller, for more than two and a half years. Miller received a demotion, but so did Deputy D.A. Tracy Stevens, the person who blew the whistle on Miller. And so the, going back to the original suit that I had been talking about, those two women who the county eventually settled with and you know didn't end up admitting any, any wrongdoing, uh, they got $700,000 between the two of them, but the guy who you know, they ended up, the guy who they were claiming had been sexually harassing them for years, he retired after this whole process unfolded. He got to take his full pension and suffered no consequences from this. Like, Isn't it amazing how that keeps happening? Like, oh, you've got all these complaints against you. Maybe if you just retire and you get to keep your pension now, 
you'll be less of a liability for us. It's, but hey, the, the young woman who's accusing you of this, her career is shot. No pension for her. Yeah. Yeah, no chances for promotion. She can't earn more more income and, and establish a higher level of pension for herself when she does eventually reach, reach retirement age. Like, it's absolutely absurd, the, the kinds of behavior that are, are documented. I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend that everybody go out there and read this article. And, of course, as we've been telling you for months now, do not vote for Jackie fucking Lacey for DA. Vote for literally anyone, preferably Rousey, but just do not vote for Lacey. Jackie Lacey will go. Uh, yeah, and it's uh, it, remember, like, whether you're voting for Gascon, whether you're voting for Rossi, it doesn't really matter in this round. Like, the point is that Jackie Lacey cannot make it to November. And, like, yeah. the best of all possible worlds is Gascon versus Rossi. Oh, when we can so talk good. about what an actual progressive district attorney will look like, and we can have people debating between a man with, like, a bit of a reformer kind of cachet yeah, and a real, like, cops. federal process, uh, yeah. federal, uh, uh, public defender, yep. like we will actually have a stark contrast between two people who have very different visions of reform, and that's what we need. If Jackie Lacey is still around come November, we have severely fucked up. So uh, let's move on from one garbage fire <laughs> to another garbage fire. Uh, so it seems like, I don't know, man, it's like once every six weeks yeah. at the most, like probably more often than that, we talk about like a fire at a major refinery yeah. here, and another one happened. Yep. Um, not... Doesn't seem like it did too much damage, um, aside from, you know, our planet's soul, but uh, these are regular occurrences. <laughs> yeah, so I'm just going to go ahead and read straight from the LA Times reporting from Jacqueline Cosgrove on this one. A large fire that erupted late Tuesday, February 25th, at the Marathon Petroleum Refinery in Carson sent flames at least 100 feet into the air, according to news reports, but was mostly contained by Wednesday morning, authorities said. The Los Angeles County Fire Department said an explosion preceded a blaze in a cooling tower at the refinery, and crews were working to depressurize the system. The Marathon Refinery is the largest on the West Coast with a crude oil capacity of 363,000 barrels per day, according to the company's website. The company operates the nation's largest refinery system with more than 3 million barrels per calendar day of crude oil capacity across 16 refineries and is headquartered in Ohio. Spokesperson could not be reached late Tuesday for comment. And uh, yeah, this is... We keep seeing this. Like, yeah, and like Marathon's interesting because they aren't in the extraction business. Like no, they're not they're drilling handling, the oil. Yeah. They're what we call a midstream company. So after the oil has come out of the ground, but before it goes into your gas tank, they deal yep. with it, which makes them a fairly low liability company. Like they don't have to worry about finding new gas. They don't have to worry about like transporting that gas yep. from the place where it's drilled or building pipelines. They lease the pipelines to get the gas to their refineries where they then break it down into its more valuable products and sell it off to whoever wants it. And it's, somewhat insidious that these companies are also some of the most stable jobs in areas like this. Like Carson, yeah. not an economic engine. Nope. That refinery provides thousands of good union jobs for people. And yep. it's something like we've talked about in the context of the Green New Deal, how we replace those good union jobs with clean union jobs and how we do that when unions like the IBEW are fighting us tooth and nail on that transition. Um, but it's also hard to like defend you know, a gigantic bomb sitting in the middle of your town. That yeah. that fire in Philadelphia that like literally oh could God. have leveled Philadelphia or literally melted people's skin off. Like the that's not okay. No, and the chemicals that they use at these processing facilities are extraordinarily dangerous. And when they get vented into the local communities, they have devastating impacts. Like the cancer rates and the asthma rates and all of the other plagues that come along with you know handling of petrochemicals are hugely elevated in the areas around these refineries. And I mean, just the fact that we do not have that 2,500 foot setback requirement for 
you know, that stand LA has been pushing for for years is just, it reflects so poorly on our city council because, you know, this is all stuff that we know how to deal with it. And we know what the solutions are. The communities are telling you what the solutions are and what they need you to do. And it is just damning that our elected officials have failed to take action on this for so long. Well, and the fact that, like, you have to explain to an elected official, like, I can be cooking dinner and look out my window and see an oil derrick. Yeah. And the the elected official immediately being like, that's not a thing that should ever happen, uh, <laughs> is kind of amazing. Like, that's one of those things where, like, your brain should automatically stop and be like, no, that's that's logically not possible. Yeah, like, no. time does not run backwards. You don't have oil derricks sitting next to schools, but here yeah. in the state of California, we do. Absolutely, and and the the stories that you hear about people who like are sitting in their kitchen looking out the window, or sitting in their living room looking out the window, and there's dudes in bunny suits walking around like fifteen no, got, feet away. I, I was biking around Northern California. I was coming south yeah. down the the. Uh, PCH and I got lost because there's a part on the 101 like I cut in inbound inbound yeah. to the 101 because I was feeling sick and I was like I don't want to be stuck on the one that seems dangerous yeah. I'd rather like go take a day off <laughs> and then ride the like 101 route down because it's more civilized and I'm, I'm closer to like help if I need Fair. it you know being a diabetic that informs a lot of my yeah. decisions but anyways yeah. I decided I was like I don't want to take the 101 there's got to be a way around this I ended up on a Chevron oil field and like a guy a big truck like stopped me I was like you don't want to ride any farther in there and I was like oh he's like yeah didn't you see the sign I'm like well, sort of. He's like, yeah, you you need like full on respirator gear <laughs> uh, to go any farther than you need to go. Let me give you a ride back uh, to the road. And they gave me some water. It was nice, but I was also like, oh, that's fun, you know. Yeah. And this is right by Paso Robles. And it's like no twenty fence. minutes outside of town. Oh, jeez, like yeah. this. <sighs> L.A. is an oil town, and we've talked about that a lot. And it's you know this stuff is going to keep happening until like one yeah. of them blows up so bad that everyone get that a lot of people get hurt and we stop this yeah. or we just come to our fucking senses and we do a green new deal. Yeah. Well, so one of the things that we we absolutely are going to talk about here uh, after the election is that there was this amazing piece that was put out by the LA Times relating to the uh inactive like the idle oil barracks and the oil fields across California and what a massive massive clusterfuck they're going to become uh, or already are really. But how much of a, a massive uh, like liability this is going to be for all of the state to deal with moving forward. Uh, we'll get into that, you know, once it's not insane election season. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but like shit's getting wild and we're going to try to keep it a little bit brief today. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, things to put on your radar, you know, obviously Tuesday, the last day for you to vote again, you have no excuse yep. not to vote. And look, vote, voting vote, 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 isn't, vote the only way we solve things, but it definitely can't hurt. And it's one of those things where like, if you are not voting, you are just giving up an avenue to power. So until we've dismantled this incredibly stupid extractive system, you should be voting to give your community members a seat at the table, because if you don't have a seat at the table, you're the one on the fucking menu. Yep. So of course there is going to be, as always, the Black Lives Matter weekly vigil, uh, which will be happening on Wednesday downtown at 211 West Temple as usual. And this one really important to be at last week. Uh, the oh, cops escalated and de- declared it an unlawful assembly. They've yeah. been pushing the barricades further and further out, trying to let BLM know that they're not welcome there, which is crazy because, like, we pay fucking taxes. Yeah. We own that goddamn building. Yep. Jackie Lacey understands that this is terrible press for her, and instead of, like, having come to the table, worked with the community, figured out how to win, she has decided to ostracize people that have racked up some big political wins here in the last two years. So I don't know. That's, like, that's a dumb one. Like, if you if you see a group of activists who are racking up win after win after win, the thing to do is probably not to try and punch them in the nose. Yeah, so I think it was uh, Melina Abdullah, or I'm actually not sure who it was, 
uh, at the vigil this past week because I, I was there and I ended up live streaming a good chunk of it for for ground game. Um, we, you know, it, it was uncanny how you <laughs> did kind of feel like we might be getting arrested um, because the sheriffs were rolling up in force. Like somebody actually showed up with the sirens and the lights blaring in response to a peaceful vigil of the families and supporters, uh, you know, uh, the supporters of those families who have been doing this for literally two years. No, but the, the point that I was trying to make uh, before I got distracted by the memory of the cops showing up with the sirens blasting was that, you know, we, those, vi those vigils have been going for two years, every single week. And it's, you know, it's varied in the number of people who have been there, but there have always been people there for two years and counting. And there is not a single politician anywhere in Los Angeles, probably also not anywhere in California, that has faced that kind of constant, sustained, organized resistance like Jackie Lacey. And this is just damning of her tenure in this office and her inability to do the fucking job. Um, it was a great meeting on Wednesday. There were a ton of people that turned out. I am really, really excited about what next Wednesday is going to be because it's possible and hopeful from our perspective that she might not even make it onto the ballot moving forward. And we'll have a pretty good sense of how that all turned out on Wednesday. So and this is also all in the context of the lawsuit that yes. Dr. Abdullah has filed yes, against has. her and the, the LA and County LAPD. sheriffs and it is and LAPD. And so like there's a lot of things <laughs> happening at once. None of them are good for Lacey. And even if she does make it through to November, oh. she is so wounded. Yeah. It's gonna be so bad. Her career's gotta be done. Um, but some other things that are gonna be going on this week. We've got a few law two meetings coming up. There is a general meeting on Monday the second that's gonna be happening at UTLA as always from seven to nine. Uh, then on Wednesday after the election, they're gonna be having their West Side local meeting, their East Hollywood local meeting, their mid their mid-city local meeting, and media train media team training all happening on the fourth in the evening. Go check out their website for details. Of course, Vibe has their meeting. Uh, the Vibe Local has their meeting on Thursday at the same time that Ground Game does from theirs is from seven to nine. Uh, and then they've got their Canoga Park local happening, having a meeting on Saturday next week as well. Uh, of course, Ground Game meets every Thursday from 7.30 to 9 at 5617 Hollywood Boulevard, just a couple of blocks from the Western and Hollywood Metro Station. Come on out, say hi. It's a great place to be, and uh, we're very friendly. We don't bite, trust us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we're, uh, you know, we have the ground game uh, and knock voter guide is out. So yes. check that out if you're not sure who to vote for. Uh, Koreatown for All has also released their report card on some of the city council races, it's only spicy. the ones that touch on Koreatown, though, yes. because that's specifically where they work. There is a lot of stuff that's happening and there's a real progressive wave coming. Uh, it's Wednesday is going to be interesting. Like, I know Tuesday night is going to be a long, yeah. long yeah, fucking night. Wednesday morning is going to be a very interesting time to wake up and see how the dust settled, uh, assuming that uh, our state can actually count and do some math, uh, <laughs> unlike other states in this fine, fine union of ours. Looking but, at you, Iowa. Yeah, but uh, thank you all very much for joining us this week. Uh, this one was a little bit condensed because it's, yeah. it's super, super busy. Next week, we're going to be going long and hard into what happened in the election and why we think it happened and fun. where we think we're going from there. It's going to be fun. 
Please show up at Ground Game. We got a bunch of stuff happening with uh, Power as well um, that we would love people to get involved in. We're really looking to expand this year. We've been growing the team and we really just want more people to show up. And and uh, our first media project is out. Check out our civics education video. It's on the Knock YouTube channel. I'm definitely going to put the link in the description. But if you're listening to this and you just want to like do community organizing or get organized or figure out like how to do any of this stuff, just like hit us up at Ground Game, info yeah. at groundgamela.org. Uh, hit us up on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. We just want to teach people how to do this stuff so then you can like get mad at people in power too. And then <laughs> after doing that for a while, you figure out what the fuck they're doing or you're doing. And then the people in power are afraid of you. Yes, they are. And they're like, oh my gosh, these people have actual power. It's fun. So as my last note, Mitch, we're coming for you. Job, buddy. Yeah, we are. So as always, if y'all have got any events that you want us to be taking part in, publicizing, or just being made aware of, please send us a message. Of course, you can reach us through the Ground Game LA Facebook page or by email at podcast at groundgamela.org. This podcast and every Ground Game podcast is a production of Knock.LA. Support our work over on Patreon at patreon.com slash knock underscore LA. Check the description for sources, links to actions, and social media links. And thank you very much for listening. It's been a pleasure as always. Yeah, thank you all. Have yourselves a good week. Vote her- vote early, vote often, vote hard. <laughs> Peace, y'all. Thirty and more. Thirty and more. Thirty and more. Thirty and more.